0: You may be seated. Were you ever an immature teenager? Maybe you're on your way there, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you were maybe you were wise for your age. I certainly was. Maybe, maybe though, if you if you weren't, you've still experienced this and you've had someone tell you to act your age. Or you've been as a parent or as a teacher. Felt the need to tell a child or a teenager or maybe even an adult, a colleague, act your age. How old are you? Act like it. Come on. This usually comes from a place of, of exasperation. right? We have expectations of people based on their age. You should know by now. You should be mature by now. You should be able to handle things. And it's not from a place of exasperation, but it's a similar idea that Paul introduces here in Colossians 3. In verse 1, he says, if then, he just puts them right together. This is, this is Paul's constant logic in every, every letter he's ever written. Paul will say, if this is true, then act this way, feel this way, believe this thing. Um, and this morning, what we read responsively earlier and what we read again just now is what we celebrated and proclaimed last week, the celebration of Easter. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And so this whole, the whole rest of this passage is flowing from that logic, that statement. Jesus has been raised from the dead. So live in that. Act like it. Here's how you do that. Paul has two lists for us a list of vices, sins, and a list of virtues, um, fruits of the Spirit, as he calls them in other parts of his letters. As he contrasts these two things to show us who we are and who we can be as God's redeemed people because we belong to Jesus, who God has risen from the dead. Right? It says, you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. He appeals both to what has happened and what will happen. So when Christ, who is your life, right, it's almost as if the, the is is bolded in the Like Jesus, who is your life, who is the only thing that truly matters to you, when he appears, you also will appear with him in glory. What well, we Read on Easter, um, we, we read this, you'll remember it from years past, we read it last week if you are here watching online or here as well, right, if Christ is risen, we said, then nothing else matters. This is the pivotal thing in all of history, it is the only reason we are here this morning. And so we can and must live in light of that truth, that's what this morning's passage about. So Paul begins with the negative verses 5 through 11, the vice lists. There's a, there's a lot of these in the New Testament, um, not just in Paul, Peter, and other, other authors use these as well. they just put together a, you know, a list of sins um, as exemplary of how we are not to live, or, and as is the case here, how we once lived. This is what he says, you, know, you used to live this way, right? You used to walk in these things. You used to, to do them. Vice lists are, are often countered then with these uh, virtue lists, and we'll, we'll come down to those in just a moment. But, I mean, these are not really fun to read, um, and, and especially if you've grown up in the church, and depending on the tradition that, you, that you're coming from, or um, the authors that you've read, the preachers you've heard, these kinds of lists just kind of feel like a, like a slap, or just like a it's like oh, a punch of like this is wrong and you do it and, and this, this is wrong and, and you do it too and uh, here's another reason why you should be ashamed of yourself and feel awful and that's not Paul's point or goal at all but that is often how we receive these things because we don't want to be told that we're wrong and we don't like to confront the fact that yes, we needed to die with Christ and be risen with him. There is something broken about us. And so Paul calls out some specific things here. So let's, let's start on the, on the list. The list is sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then the list continues a couple of verses later in verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. This is quite a list. And I think that you read sexual immorality and the rest is sort of like fall in under that because we're sex obsessed and it's the only thing that we as Christians in our culture or as just our culture in our general seem to care about. Or at least that's what we get accused of. There was a, uh, an article recently about um, a celebrity couple who attends one of the big evangelical churches and I'm not going to say who they are because again, I don't know them. I don't know their faith. Um, I don't know what they're, how serious they are, but they're publicly known as evangelical-ish. Anyway, they're engaged, but now they're living together, and they're not married yet. And so there was a sort of like this, people are tweeting about this, there's articles, and they're like, do Christians care about this? Does this matter? I mean, they're engaged. Who cares? Grow up, right? They're living together. They're engaged. Why does it matter? Who cares? And then similarly, Christians saying like, don't we care about this? (laughs) Like, didn't we spend a lot of time talking about sexual ethics and Uh, what we do and what we don't do, and the covenant and sanctity of marriage. Do do we care about this stuff or not? Um, And similarly, when it it comes into our lives, because this is what we need to think about, Paul is not talking about things outside in the world, and the decay of culture, or the sinfulness of non-Christians, both either for us in our context, or the Colossians in theirs. No, he's, he's talking to them about, hey, this is who you used to be and in some ways still are. And so we, when we read this list, um, we may be drawn to first think about all of the things that are happening outside of the church in our country or in the world that fall, uh, fall into these various categories and be concerned or upset about them, which is not necessarily wrong. It's just not what Paul is concerned about in this passage. right? Paul is saying, what is earthly in you? What is earthly in you? So whether it is something like people living together, sleeping together before they're married, people who are married or single using pornography, people committing adultery, or simply indulging in lust, which, what even is that? These are the things that we're to be concerned about and that Paul is concerned about for the Colossians. Hey, look, I know how you used to live your lives, and I know what the culture around you is like, you're going to be tempted to live this way. And so I'm warning you against it. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. The word evil desire is, is, a, is a somewhat of a trap for us. Because there's a, there's a version of Christian ethics that is all desire is evil and we need to be like Stoic, emotionless, holy vessels. And we know from chapter 2, which it's been a couple weeks, so if you don't remember, Paul in chapter 2 very strongly warned against that way of thinking. Hey, don't create a ton of, ton of rules and regulations for yourselves to try to keep you holy and from sin, you know, in addition to what I'm teaching here. Those are not going to help. Those rules are not going to change your heart. Evil desire, um, The word desire in this particular passage in Greek has a modifier on it. So it doesn't just mean desire, it means excessive. The modifier means more. And so the idea is not simply that desire is evil in itself, right? Sexual desire, not evil. Desiring food, not evil. Good things, normal, natural things. What Paul is talking about is an excessive and disordered desire that goes above and beyond what the body needs, and that is focused on the individual and on the self. And I think that, that that idea is what we potentially, as a church here and nationally, are struggling with. Less so that there is rampant sexual immorality in the church or rampant impurity, but that there is rampant individualism, whether that expresses itself in not wanting anyone else to tell you what to do with your sex life or with your financial life or as a parent or um, in your work life or any of these things, right? There is an excessive and extreme individualism where any any sort of rule or direction is unwanted and uncomfortable. But the Bible is full of direction, moral direction. Um, And in this case, Paul is singling out sexual issues, sexual immorality. And so this all comes together, Paul is saying, these things are idolatry. Right? It's as if he's going back to the Ten Commandments and, and putting all of these things together underneath the umbrella of covetousness, which is the Tenth Commandment, which then is also under the commandment of idolatry, you shall have no other gods before me. And the idea is not that you've made sex or money or power your God, though that may well be true of you, the the warning is that you've made yourself your God. Yourself your God, and your desires are not ordered or regulated by anything. And so he says, on account of these things, idolatry, the wrath of God is coming. Paul says this real quick, short sentence, one verse, Moves right on, doesn't explain what the wrath of God is, doesn't really dive into it. It's not the main focus of this passage. But that's another thing that we read and we're like, whoa, the wrath of God is coming. God's wrath is not simply his excessive, or not even, not simply, just not at all, his excessive anger. We think of wrath, we think of a wrathful person as someone who is out of control. You don't want to be in a room with someone who you would describe as wrathful because you don't know what you're going to do or say that's going to set them off. You can't trust them. You don't know what to expect from them. They're, they're like a sociopath. They're crazy. And it's tempting to think of God this way, especially when uh, we're confronted with lists of vices that might be true of us that make us very uncomfortable and angry. We become angry. God is angry. Everyone is angry all the time. And you can't have a relationship with a God like that. But on the other hand, God is not this sort of blind, disconnected uh, judge or, or you know, celestial police officer who just says, this is wrong, this is right, uh, you were wrong, so here you go, and you were right, so here you go. No, God, is, God is a God who has relationship with his people. And this, this is what Colossians is all about. The beginning of Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that everything that is was made by and for Jesus. Right? Everything that is was made by and for Jesus. He is the crown of all creation, the ruler of all creation. He loves it, and it is beautiful in his image. God cr- creates a covenant relationship with the people in Israel in the Old Testament. He expands that covenant to include, as it says in verse 11, Jew, Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Christ will be, is all and in all. All people are invited into this covenant relationship with a holy God. When the Bible talks about God's wrath, it's not talking about his unchecked anger that he just pours out on bad sinners. It's talking about how God responds to a covenant people who do not, who do not respond to his love, direction, and grace. We see this constantly in the life of Israel. So in the the life of Israel, the, uh, the, the psalmist David will often talk about how God is his salvation, God is his fortress. And what he's talking about is that God is literally saved David's life, his physical life, not his eternal soul, from his enemies. God is his salvation. And when God gives Israel over to their enemies, that is described as God having wrath. So God says to, to, to Israel, you want to worship false gods and commit idolatry, you can rely on those gods to save you when you go to war with your neighbors and your enemies. Inevitably, those gods do not save them. Israel is conquered many times throughout the Old Testament, ultimately is exiled from its, from its homeland. And when we um, pick the story up in the New Testament, Israel is occupied by Rome. This is an expression of God's wrath. God giving over the people that he loves to the things they have chosen above and instead of him. And God will ultimately do that at the end of all things. That is what Paul is talking about when he says that the wrath of God is coming. We are corrupted by sin. We make idolatrous, selfish choices. And if we do not turn from those choices, God will indulge us in them, give us over to them, and they will destroy us and separate us from him and his love forever. That's what, God, that's what Paul's talking about when he says the wrath of God is coming. That is, that is the warning and the dire circumstance of hell. And so Paul says, hey, look, you, you used to do these things. You, you once lived in them. But now, put them all away. And this is when he adds in the rest, right? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Wrath. That's the same word again. That's not just my translation translating two different words the same way. God has wrath, and we don't. So when you read this, put away these things that are earthly, and he talks about sexual immorality, talks about covetousness, wrath, malice, languor, we are often tempted to think of people who practice these things and say, yes, get them out of here. That's not at all what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about people. He's talking about problems. He's talking about sins. God, in his wrath, yes, will execute justice in the end on, on any number of sins and sinful people. But we are called to something different. We are called, as we'll say later on, to forgive as Christ forgave. And so we when we are tempted to feel wrath, even if that wrath might be justified coming from God, we're instructed to put it away. And so we do not have wrath or anger towards our sinful brother or sister. We take those things, malice, slander, obscene talk. Obscene talk is not simply four-letter words, right? It's words that are meant or intended to harm, right? We take these things, we put them away. We do not seek to harm, we seek to heal, we seek to love. And that ultimately is the counter to all of these things. Put on then, in verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 14, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So I said earlier, you know, you might read a list like this, and if any of these things, if you have ever been angry, if you have in, your pa- in the past or even currently committed something that would fall under the category of sexual immorality, you may feel tempted, or not even feel tempted, you just feel shame. Feel unworthy or, or dirty or, or outside of the holy circle that seems to exist in the church. But that's not what Paul's saying it all. No. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, already, already holy and beloved. Why? Because you died with Christ and you have been raised with him. And so regardless of what you have done and not done, you belong to him and you are holy and beloved in his sight. He's chosen you in spite of all of those things. And so there is no need for you to feel shame. There is no need for you to feel anger or wrath towards yourself and what you've done. No, instead, we are to recognize who we are as God's people, to know that we are already holy and beloved, and live from that identity, from that place of confidence and peace and love, And from that, we can actually change. We can put away anger and instead take on humility. We can put away wrath and instead be meek. Because we don't need to prove ourselves through our emotional displays. We have died and have risen with Christ. And in him we are holy and beloved. And so what Paul wants us to do in putting on love and in growing in those things, how does this happen? Right? Because chapter 2 warned us, again, warned us against creating a bunch of rules and regulations and, you know, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He said those things aren't going to change you. They're not going to help you. What is going to, what practices are going to help us live from this place of holiness and love? He answers that question in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When we gather together to worship the God who rose Christ from the dead and us with him, that act, those acts of worship, those acts of, of reading and of singing, of hearing each other's voices and seeing each other's, seeing each other's faces, those things are, are honored and blessed and used by God. We are the means that God uses through this power of his Holy Spirit to change one another. When he says in verse verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, he's not talking about how you should have peace of mind because of what Christ has done for you, though you should. He's saying in all of you, you plural, hearts plural, as a body, as a people brought together by this. Let the peace of Christ rule. Love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another. We cannot put away anger or wrath, evil desire or sexual immorality outside of the community and the body that God has created for us, which is made up of one another. One another, one another, one another. Paul says that all the time. Again, when you go back to verses 1 through 4, all of those yous are plural. You all died and have been raised with Christ together. And so if you, as an individual, feel the potential shame or the conviction over any of these things listed here or, or... or or any of the sins that that are not listed here, because this is hardly exhaustive, right? The, The solution to that is the church. Not the building or the pastor, but the people, the family that God has created here. And so we confess to one another, we hold one another accountable, we encourage one another, teach and admonish, and we sing and we give thanks with one another. One of the things that was highlighted in our email this past week was uh, how we have a meal train for, for new moms. And we do need some, some more volunteers for that. Um, I don't doubt for a second that our care for one another has, has dropped off. Um, I, just, I just know that you're probably not reading all of your emails right now and you might have missed that opportunity. I want to encourage you, though, um, and there's a great way to do this. It is just a very simple but consistent example of how our community that be free has cared for one another. So when families, uh, when families have something to celebrate, we celebrate with them, we care for them. And when families have something to mourn, we mourn with them, and we care for them. We are together. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony. That is what Paul wants. For the Colossians. Yes, that they would stop sinning. That they would put those things away. But all the more. That they would have love for one another. As Christ had love for them. That's, that's exactly what he says. Forgive one another. As Christ has forgiven you. You must forgive one another. We must love and care for one another. This is the thing that's going to change us. This is the thing that's going to help us to live and believe that we are the holy and beloved people that God promises and assures us we are. So we worship together. We do everything together with one another in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the calling that we have for ourselves. This is the result of what we've celebrated this past week in Easter. Christ is risen. You all Died with him, and you all have been raised with him. Your life together is hidden in him. And when he returns, you together will find and experience his glory. And until then, we are his people, and our love that comes from him can bind us together in perfect harmony. Through this collective and shared love, shared community, we can put to death earthly things, sins, and we can put on the holy and beloved love, meekness, humility that God has made available to us. Let's pray and give thanks for what Christ has done and for one another, for the fact that we can be here together in this room and worship, that we can share through the internet with one another who are separated right now, longing for the day when we are together all the more for the day when we are all, from the past and the future, everyone who has believed together in the new heaven and the new earth. Let's pray and give thanks for all of these things. Lord, in everything that we do and say, may it be in your name. Anything done in your name, Lord, cannot fall into, the, into that list that Paul has, has confronted us with. But Lord, if we truly want to be humble, meek, or loving, we, we can't do so without you. We can't do so without one another. So Lord, we ask for your help, that you would encourage us, that the, the preaching of your word, the singing of songs and the reading of scripture, the fellowship that we have together, that you would truly use this to change us, You would truly use it to form us into the people that you have enabled us to be. That we would feel, know, and act as the holy and beloved people that we are. We pray this in the name of Jesus, giving you thanks and praise. Amen.
1: Would you stand to sing? of Christ my Savior, live in me from day to day, by His love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour. So that all my words and actions are only through His power. May the peace of God, my Father, rule my life in everything. That I may be calm to comfort, sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing, He's my victory. He's my victory. He's my victory.
0: Let's be sent.